Smartcast. The most important decisions you make as a senior leader, whether it's a team of one or a team of a million, is resource allocation, right? Where are we going to spend and deploy our precious few resources? And that is a decision-making process that you want to inform with data and facts and experimentation, but you also, there's a high degree of intuition that goes into it and everything, right? And the more strategic a decision, the more intuition tends to go into how it plays out. You can't be all intuition. You can't be all data-driven at these strategic decisions. Welcome to Think Business with Tyler, sharing our methods and strategies for success. Join in on our conversations with business owners as we highlight their triumphs and detail how they overcame the challenges they faced while continuing to grow and scale their business. It's time to think life, think success, and think business with your host, Tyler Martin. Welcome to another exciting episode. Today, we dive deep into the world of digital transformation, leadership, and innovation with our guest, John Rossman. In this episode, you will discover the importance of always putting your business mission at the forefront. Learn how constraints like frugality can be a driving force for innovation and gain insights into why customer obsession is a game changer in today's business environment. With years of experience and expertise from working with giants like Amazon, John is here to share invaluable lessons that will help shape your business for future success. So, Grab your notebook, tune in, and let's get started. Hey, John, thanks so much for being on the Think Business with Tyler podcast show. How's it going? Tyler, it's been great to meet you. Thank you for inviting me. Yeah, I'm so excited to have you. If you could just start with telling us a little bit about you, both professionally and personally, I think that'd be a great way to get started. Yeah, so I'll make it short, but I was an early leader at Amazon I got to launch the Amazon Marketplace business in 2002. I left in 2005. I've been working with clients on kind of their innovation and competing better in this digital era kind of ever since then. And I wrote a book that kind of changed everything for me. It's called The Amazon Way. And then another book, which is kind of the full manual book called Think Like Amazon. And today I do kind of half keynote speaking and half advisory work with my clients, helping them think through both their leadership as well as their business strategy. Very cool. Man, I have so many questions here going through my head. What was it like working? I mean, because you went through a very, uh, an area, a time frame that Amazon was going through probably hyper growth isn't even giving it justice. What was that like? You know, ironically, it wasn't hyper growth. So this is 2002. So little way back machine here, right? So today, Amazon is a $550 billion organization, something like that. Fourth quarter, 2002, we had our first billion dollar quarter. And so it was a fraction of the size. 90% of the business was books, music, video. Everybody was calling us Amazon.com, Amazon.org, Amazon.toast. And it was awesome and it was intense and it was a place that you could make a difference. And I absolutely loved it. It had a high bar in every way that you can think about relative to 
impact and contribution and effort that you needed to to make and everything. But it was it was a great environment. And I took, you know, I always joke, it's like it was one time in in my life that I paid attention in class. I I took so much from it. And it obviously kind of shaped how I approach my work today in a hundred different ways. Yeah, I guess I kind of have my timing up. So it was obviously not, you weren't profitable at that point, right? No. Okay. We were having about 20% year-over-year growth at that point. Okay. So it was good, but it was not great. Not crazy, yeah. It was, it was really 2007, 2008, when the marketplace business really connected. And it was kind of the combination of marketplace, Prime, and FBA, Fulfillment by Amazon. Those, And then customers just getting used to coming to Amazon to buy more than just books, music, video. And so it took some time for everything to kind of come together. Then it went into the hyper growth mode of 40, 50% year over year growth kind of metrics and everything. And that really went on for the next, you know, 10, 12 years. The past year or two, it's kind of settled back down a little bit and everything. But back then it was, it was 18 to 20% growth, which was great, but it, it wasn't hyper growth. I got this might be a silly question but it, I always am wondering when they started FBA or even maybe before FBA is the vision so clear that they go wow someday we're literally going to have every single product in the work, world in our marketplace almost so there's a couple of different kind of ways to answer that I think Jeff's ambition and kind of vision of the everything store came Pretty early. He didn't start with that. At first, it really was the, the Earth's biggest bookstore, you know, and everything. But I think pretty after that, he saw like, oh, like we really should become the everything store. It took a few different approaches on third-party selling, having inventory beyond first-party inventory to get it right. And so the marketplace business was actually the third attempt at some sort of third-party selling approach. And I think there's a good story there. But nobody saw the combination of Marketplace, Prime, and FBA. Oh, that that those three things are all going to line up together and and work like. And so the ambition was there, the vision was there, but the moving parts of it weren't clear and weren't known. Like so, when we launched the Marketplace business in two thousand two, we were just starting to talk about a shipping membership called Prime. We never talked about like, oh, well, we'll open that up to third party sellers. And nobody ever had this concept of kind of this composable fulfillment service called FBA. So it just kind of evolves, essentially. Yeah. yeah. And it's really because we kept exploring, like, what's the job to be done for our customer or for our seller? And let's figure out how we can make their business or life better and make great business out of it. Because huh. I was wondering, even like this latest one with like healthcare is in clinics are are starting to get promoted a lot on Amazon. Like I sit back and I go, okay, what's the grand scheme here? Like, is this, you know, is it just an avenue they're trying to get in to distribute uh, prescriptions? Is it is it something bigger than that? Do you have any thoughts in terms of strategy on that? Yes, healthcare is what eighteen percent of GDP, something like that, and it's got massive margins in it. And there's a segment of healthcare that is a lot of repeatable transactions. I think Amazon's natural orientation is really, really good at at high repetitive transaction types of stuff, right? And so I think it's just how to be relevant in your customer's life and capture 
you know, more share of wallet on these highly repeatable types of, of transactions. And then they're going to find ways to serve both the supply chain of healthcare, the retailers of healthcare, the providers of healthcare, the insurance of healthcare. Like it's such a complex, multi sided industry that it's a great place for a company that has lots of tools and is comfortable with kind of the experimentation notion to to get involved in. And it's a big market. And for a company the size of Amazon, the only thing that's going to move needles is is going to really big markets. And so it's a really important segment for them over a long period of time. That's fascinating. I'm curious, did you ever have any conversations with Jeff that kind of imprinted uh, something on you, whether it be career or anecdotal? Yeah, some of these kind of set my therapy back a little bit, though. <laughs> and I tell some of these stories in in particular in the Amazon way and everything. But one of them was kind of a, a lecture to myself and a colleague of mine in front of the S team. And he didn't do that to embarrass you. It was, it was like, hey, to make sure everybody got this point and everything, which was about how Neil and I had allowed something simple to become the hard thing in the business. And a good leader only lets really hard things become the hard things in the business. And he went on and gave this long example, you know, and everything. And and the end point was like, don't let internal things, the world's hard enough as it is, right? And there's enough uncontrollable factors. Don't let internal things become the hard things in your business. And, And to that point, like Neil and I had let a hard thing, and it was only because we weren't willing to go have bold, assertive, hard conversations with our colleagues. And basically what Jeff was telling me was, hey, your title might be director of merchant integration, but you drive the marketplace. And don't don't confuse organizational structures with that accountability. And it's like, got it. Like, hey, I actually appreciated the fact that it was in front of all my peers because then they all knew like, oh, when John comes knocking, like, like the CEO has told him to get this done, even if it doesn't report to him, right? And so that orientation of you got to work for the mission, don't let your org chart get in the way, especially when you're doing something new, something hard, org structures really get in the way. And especially in bigger businesses, you know, people get so territorial and, you know, they everything has to go up and down in the organization. What does that do? Well, it adds risk, it adds complexity, and it adds time. And and so if you can be more mission-oriented and go orthogonally across the organization, that's a power play for big companies to be able to make change happen better. And that's the sort of thing like I work with, like, oh, well, how do you go do something like that, right? Uh, that's, that's fascinating me. So being frugal is one of the things oftentimes, you know, my uh, Amazon's kind of been been people have been critical about. So it's actually a leadership principle. Yeah, I was gonna say that's where I was actually going with this. Yes. Take me through that. Like because oftentimes you think in my mind, I think frugal, I think could actually slow down your progression. So where's that balance? And I'd love to talk about that a little bit. Yeah. So frugality is really a constraint, right? And so it's much more oriented, especially today, in design processes, design approaches, solve problems by having cost be a constraint. And, you know, working from a target cost model back is a really stealth move of how to innovate. If you look at all of Elon Musk's companies, X aside, but Tesla, the boring company, or SpaceX, 
all of them, what the, their core innovation is they dramatically change the cost structure of their fundamental industry. And then he's used that target cost model and worked back to like, well, how does the design, the production, the first principles of our product have to fit to that target cost structure? And so I do that move a lot with my clients is like, hey, how would we change, you know, take 25% out of your cogs? I'm not suggesting it's possible. What I'm saying is, hey, let's go through the thought exercise of how we would do a radical exercise like that. And guess what? All of a sudden, like they haven't rethought from like a zero-based design approach how they fundamentally add value and how you can compete on a cost basis. But the world gets a whole lot easier if you can take your cogs down, you know, 25 to 50%, then you you can compete on price. You can invest in marketing, you can invest in actual like innovation and new features and enhancements. Like you can do all sorts of things if you free up some breathing room from your cost structure standpoint. And that can be just one of the benefits of going through an exercise like that. So think of frugality more in the spirit of a constraint in which we use to innovate and improve our capability. Okay. Now, is this a made-up story or is this true? I heard or I read or heard, I don't know where, that in the early days, Jeff actually took a door and used it as his desk. Is that true? Like he put it absolutely true. And actually, for a long period of time, I got to do this. You put your own door desk together. Wow. But one of the funny stories I can share is that is that, you know, these principles. And the mechanisms, like the, you know, the principle is frugality. A mechanism, the way you express it is little things like having a door desk. Those things have to be used with wisdom, not a strict rule. So I remember this funny, funny story. Like Jeff was, was talking about this very nature. Like, Hey, we have these, these principles and these rules in place, but you have to be smart about it. And he told this example where some, uh, a new hire in London had a door desk shipped from Seattle. Whoops. And he wrapped the story with uh, that person is no longer with us, you know, and everything, right? Uh, And so all of these things, you always have, like, there's some underlying first principles to the principles. And one of them is, you know, use with wisdom, use with good intent, because with anything, you can be stupid about it, right? Yeah, that's a, yeah, a lot of stuff. Hey, so since we're talking about your book from the Amazon way, Amazon's 14 leadership principles, there were a few of those principles I took out. I'd love to just kind of riff about. Another one was customer obsession, which to me is an obvious one, but I think it applies to anybody running a business. Can we talk about that a little bit? Like, what are your thoughts on it? Yeah, yeah. So here's the funny thing about that leadership principle. Two things is sometimes people think, well, all you need is customer obsession. And, and like, no, 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 no. It's the first leadership principle and kind of you might refer to it as the first of several but it's just the first of several you know and everything right you can't live with just customer obsession or there would have been just one leadership principle at amazon right the second is is that i think there's fundamentally two types of customer obsession one is tactical customer obsession and the other is strategic customer obsession tactical customer obsession is like hey we got to get today's order today's customers today's thing right and perfect. Well, that's really like operational excellence, showing a sense of urgency to doing the right thing for today's product, today's service for today's customer. Strategic customer obsession is completely different. Strategic customer obsession is giving yourself the luxury to be curious 
about your customer bigger and broader than just how you're working with them today. And this allows you to understand their life, their job, what happens on a good day, what happens on a bad way. What can you learn about your customer to both improve your product and service, today's product and service, but secondly, to spot opportunities for for expansion, for growth. And it's that strategic customer obsession that really took Amazon from being a books, music, video retailer to this conglomerate business today was because they're always curious about what's going on with the customer bigger and broader. And so I don't think too many people, they they always think about it as customer obsessions about hustle. It is about hustle, but it's also about curiosity. So when we talk about like, let's say their tablet, or maybe even they did a phone for a while, and then all of a sudden they say, hey, we're not going in that direction. What's it like for the employees that actually came up with that idea, went in that direction? Is it like, hey, you really screwed up? Or is that encouraged that type of behavior? It depends. And, and it, you know, think of all of these things as an experiment. An experiment can fail for two reasons. A, it's an experiment. It worked or it didn't work. We can execute super well, but we let the experiment do what it was supposed to do. Learn from it, right? Did it work? Did it not work? Do we adjust? Do we move? Do we pivot? Do we fall back? Do we scale, right? Like those are all the decisions you make out of an experiment. The second way an experiment can fail is we didn't execute well. And so when I work with my clients, one of the things I try to not do is that that term failure is an overloaded term. It means too many things to too many different people. So I deliberately use the word, we use experimentation versus execution because experimentation is what we're trying to optimize for. Execution, no matter what, you should have a high bar, a high level of expectations on how we execute. And this is why so many innovation programs at bigger companies don't work is because they allow themselves to be sloppy in their agile methodology, which has basically become the methodology of no accountability at a, at a, a lot of companies, not every company, but at a lot of companies. And they don't have a high bar relative to execution. Oh, we're just failing fast. We're failing. We're exploring. We're being agile. That That's just BS in most companies. And what it's what gives innovation programs such a bad rapport with the rest of the business. If you're a business owner feeling stuck in your business, overwhelmed, responsible for everything that happens, and working long hours, Tyler helps his clients develop processes, hire high-performing team members, and better understand their financial metrics and numbers to allow for a more predictable, less hands-on business. To schedule a free, no-pressure consultation, head to thinktyler.com and click the meeting button. Tyler would love to see if he can help you work on your business, not in your business. Schedule a consultation today at thinktyler.com. Think life, think success, think business. And they don't have a high bar relative to execution. Oh, we're just failing fast. We're failing. We're exploring. We're being agile. That, that's just BS in most companies. And what it's what gives innovation programs such a bad rapport with the rest of the business. Yeah. So I've got a couple more on these uh, leadership principles I, yep. I wanted to get your thoughts on. Ownership. So, you know, that seems like an obvious one, but it's a lot of times in small businesses, you know, when you have small leadership teams, sometimes there's a lack of ownership. Give us some thoughts around that. Well, first, one of the things that's powerful about these principles is the kind of the paragraph behind the quick sentence. And I'm just going to read this one if that's... Sure, please. Yeah, please. So it says, leaders are owners. They think long-term, 
and don't sacrifice long-term value for short-term results. They act on behalf of the entire company beyond just their own team. They never say that's not my job, right? So there's a few really important concepts in there, which is first, we should always be trying to optimize for enterprise results versus some sub-segment of either the P&L or the organization or whatever. And so leaders have to be extremely thoughtful about the types of incentive systems they've put in place because those incentive systems, if you're not really thoughtful about it, what they do is they shoot for sub-optimization of the enterprise while trying to optimize some component of it. And so a lot of what you know I talk with my, my clients about is kind of as a secondary support, hey, let's talk about incentives here because especially at the senior level, it plays a really important part in in like what really gets done and what really gets paid attention to at the at the ELT level. So you know that's what ownership is a, is about. It again, kind of it's not just about like being accountable for getting something done. There's a much broader interpretation of long-term orientation and we are, we are not here to optimize our job, our team. We're here to optimize for long-term shareholder value. Yeah, yeah. So one more I want to touch on, earn trust. I wanted to talk about that a little bit. What are your thoughts around uh, earning trust? Yeah, so the spirit of the principle earn trust is about being vocally self-critical and that always approach any situation like, well, what what role did I play in that? What can I learn from that? How do I take accountability relative to that? And when you do that, one of the things is you become more anti-fragile, right? So you, you build systems, processes, mindsets, approaches that assume that other things are going to fail. How do I create something that is anti-fragile so that my part of, hey, at some point, you're going you're gonna to disappoint me, you're going to fail me, and I'm not going to let that impact my business as much as it might otherwise. So that's one notion of earned trust. And the other is that, especially within your, your peers and your colleagues, if you always are vocally self-critical first, guess what that gives you the permission to do? It gives you the permission to hold others accountable, right? And so the number of meetings that I remember at Amazon where leaders would start with like, we'd be reviewing a metric or something like that. And it's like, and they would go, they would start the, the, the meeting with like, well, we really sucked this week. Like we really let this metric down. Here's what happened. Here's the root cause of this issue. And here's what we're doing about it, you know, and everything, right? And then they'd go, and guess what? You know, Joe, like, hey, you're upstream service. You kind of played a role in this, you know, you played a role in this downstream, da, 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 da. But just by being vocally self-critical first and always asking, well, what did I do? And what's the root cause that, you know, kind of the five whys exercise that helps build more durable root cause oriented problem solving and solutions. Interesting. Is there a, a fear in that being open and kind of owning errors that you've made? So obviously the bigger the organization, the more I imagine the more political it is. How do you do that without coming off like the guy that's doing things wrong or the the lady that's doing things wrong? Well, there's a, a lot to, to, to cover in that <laughs> in that in that question. And so it does, it takes trust. Yeah. Your whole story can't be 
one of like, ah, shoot, we got this wrong again, you know, and everything, right? There's a, there's a leadership principle that is about, it's titled are right a lot. And it's about, hey, in general, leaders have to be right a lot, you know, and everything. And so the, again, you can't take these leadership principles in isolation and just focus on one. Every situation is typically a combination of two or three that you use as a tool to help either orient to a better approach or as a as a kind of a leadership or learning moment and stuff. And, and they oftentimes, it feels like they're battling against each other, but that forces you to a better place, right? Oh yeah, we have to do both of these things. That's not easy. Okay, I need to innovate. I need to get better in order to accomplish both of these. So I'm glad you brought up your right a lot, one of the principles, because I, I actually enjoyed that one. And it's not that you're, you know, it all, not in that sense. It's more of you have a good intuition on making decisions. Now I know some people are going to read that and they're going to go, wow, I'm not sure if I can be a leader. Cause I'm not sure if I'm going to be right a lot. Is that something that is, de- I mean, can you develop, and I'm talking obviously not for an Amazon size business now, but more of like a small business, you're growing to maybe 10, 15 million, whatever. Do you develop that intuition or is that something kind of God given? I wouldn't even call it intuition. Like the most important decisions you make as a senior leader, whether it's a team of one or a team of a million is resource allocation, right? Where are we going to spend and deploy our precious few resources? And that is a a decision-making process that you want to inform with data and facts and experimentation but you also, there's a high degree of intuition that goes into it and everything, right? And the more strategic a decision, the more intuition tends to go into how it plays out. You can't be all intuition. You can't be all data-driven at these strategic decisions. But that is ultimately your job as a senior leader is making those resource allocation decisions. So you can absolutely learn how to do that better. And really, that's the essence of a lot of you know what true strategy is, is true strategy is solving a hard problem in the business and deciding how do we proceed relative to it? How do we allocate resources to it? And, th- and those are the most important decisions that enterprises make. Well, very cool. So you've got a book coming up, another book, Big Bet Leadership. So reading the summary on it and just what it's about, you talk about bold moves. And one thing that kind of went through my head as I was reading about it, how do we know when you're going to make this bold move versus potentially it's something reckless and maybe you know not the best move? How do you differentiate between that? Yeah, so the name of the book is Big Bet Leadership. And it really is about those moments, those decisions that we were just talking about where there's high potential outcome, but we know it's a calculated risk and everything, right? And so there's a bunch of reasons why these things fail. And so the whole book is essentially like, how do I think it through? How do I de-risk these things so that I can I can be more successful at them and actually take more big bets, not fewer big bets? Because companies need to take more big bets. But if you fail at the current rate of like 85% of these things fail, what well, you know, you're going to retract, right? You're not going to, you're going to be uh, timid on these things. And so the number one thing you need to do is recognize 
A, when is it a big bet versus like, oh, no, this is just a smart investment. And I know that essentially if I execute well, I'm going to have a certain ROI to it. That's not a big bet. That's just a big investment. And and you should proceed relative to kind of your calculated ROI. But on a big bet, those are the things where you need to slow them down. You need to think them through by writing out your perspective on this, right? And that's that's a part of the book is a specific set of ways to write things out and debate them actively persecute these ideas. And that is actually experimentation. And you can do this as a team of one, as a team of two, as a team of 200, as a whole enterprise, you know, and everything. That's one of the things I love about both the spirit of the book as as well as this kind of writing approach, which is it scales, right? I do this in my own business. My business is me, right? And I, I write about like, imagine a day when, and then work backwards from that. And it's like, okay, you know, a, like what what are the highest risk elements of that future vision that I envision? And how do I accelerate testing those things early so that I don't defer the big risks? And that's one of the mistakes companies make on these big bets is A, they don't think them through well enough, critically think them through and debate harsh scenarios relative to them. And then B is they actually defer the biggest risks versus accelerating those risks. And so if you can find a way to truly understand the two or three critical risks of a new concept and accelerate the testing of it, deferring the big commitments and the big expenses, guess what I've done? I've made this experiment affordable so that I can actually let the experiment do what it should do, which is succeed or fail or iterate, right? And that's how you win. Actually, we, we call it in the book, becoming a big bet legend, right? That's how you become a big bet legend is, is through these critical habits. And, that, and that's the whole story of the book. Who doesn't want to become a legend? Exactly, exactly. <laughs> hey, I, so I got another question for you regarding AI. So I know AI has been around for many years. Uh, now it's kind of in the mainstream in terms of ChatGPT, and we're seeing a lot of things that it can do uh, that are uh, more routine things quickly. Two-part question. Where do you see from a labor standpoint, AI-type development is going to affect labor? And then from a strategic standpoint, is where does AI fit in from strategy thinking? What time frame, what time horizon am I, am I answering this question? <laughs> Next Five years, yeah, five, ten years. Five, five yeah. ten years. So the full title of the book is Big Bet Leadership, Your Transformation Playbook for Winning in the Hyper-Digital Era. So the thesis of the book is we need to get good, leaders need to get good at these big bets. Because if you think the past 30 years of quote-unquote digital disruption has been disruptive, I think that's just the warm-up innings relative to what's going to be happening over the next 25 years. And so over the next five to 10 years, I think you are going to start to see operating models and productivity in the back office of companies take a big step up relative to what it takes to get things done today. And we are just seeing the very tip of the iceberg of how AI can impact productivity in most organizations. I mean, this is the part I, I grapple with and I have different discussions with different people. How does this affect labor? Like, do you, in your mind, do you think new jobs get created because there's now different types of jobs needed, like we've often seen when there's new technologies and new types of uh, automation? Or are we potentially in trouble? 
Yeah. So, you know, my family's family of swimmers and, and I believe in the mantra of stay in your swim lane, you know, and everything. Right. And so, so I'm not an economist and I'm not a futurist, but my perspective on this is a pretty optimistic one, okay. which is over the long period of time, new jobs categories that we can't even envision today, it always spurs growth, but there will be short-term pain. And I do, I do worry about, and I don't take joy in knowing that, that these things do impact real people, real families today. And I think that's the number one thing as a country we need to, to focus on is encouraging an environment of innovation while taking care and helping people make the leap to those new skills that make them relevant in the market. And so I think in the short term, it can create negative impact on short-term jobs, but at a macro level, it will be a great thing for our country and for the economy. Yeah. Eloquent, very eloquent the way you said it. I appreciate that. So I always love to end with um, this last question. Do you have a business or a life tip, something in your journey that you've experienced that you could share with us? Maybe we can apply. Yeah, absolutely. Before I go there, though, I want to make an offer to your audience, which is... Well, I'll, 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 I promise you I'll cover that last. I promise. Cool. Perfect. Yeah. So... The tip that I would give to anyone is I was an engineer. I was a partner at an accounting firm before I was at Amazon. I thought I knew how to use metrics and data to evaluate a business. I learned a whole new level of how to use metrics in a business to gain insights, drive improvement, uh, make a better business. And it's always a move of no regret whenever I'm visiting with somebody to talk to them about both their short-term metrics. How do I know how things ran today as well as their long-term metrics? How do I think about things over a year period? And not and too many people focus on solely the financial metrics and a few few market metrics in their business. And I learned a whole new playbook of metrics at Amazon. And, and so the move I would suggest for anybody is triple down on the metrics you put in your business. And I always say like metrics are not a noun, metrics are verb. We have metrics to drive insights and action in our business. So use those metrics as a signal to what's not good enough today and what are your customers asking for. Mm, great stuff. I love that. Hey, so your websites, and I'll put this in the show notes at thinktyler.com, rossmanpartners.com. And then if people want to email to you, info at rossmanpartners.com. Now, you had just mentioned bigbetleadership.com. That's your website for your new book. Now, can you share a little bit about this offer uh, that, uh, that you're making to the audience? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So Big Bet Leadership releases February 27th of 2024. So my offer is go to bigbetleadership.com, put in your information. I'll do a drawing of 10 or 15 from this specific podcast. So you need to tell me what podcast uh, this came from, available to US residents only. And the thing I ask is that you write a customer review for the book. So you'll get the Kindle version when it releases February 27th. I ask that you write a customer review, but it'll it'll be a real nice produced Kindle version of the book. And I hope people put it to work and really use it to change how they make these big bets. Yeah, I'm excited about the book. So that's exciting. Great offer. Thank you for offering that to the audience. Hey, John, you're you're awesome. You're fun to talk with. A lot of wisdom in a short amount of time. Can't thank you enough for being on the show. Come back when your book goes live. So you're welcome to if you want to. Right on. Tyler, thank you for, you know, the conversation, making your audience available. And and uh, I hope everybody really digs into, 
you know, making an incredible business and competing better. Yeah, awesome. Okay, have a great one, John. Thanks. That's all for this episode of Think Business with Tyler. But we have plenty more resources to help you in your pursuit of business excellence on our website at thinktyler.com. If you'd like to be featured in a future episode of the show, feel free to reach out to us on social media at think underscore Tyler. We look forward to helping you think life, think success, and think business. Welcome to Transforming 45, the podcast that celebrates the incredible power of passionate voices. I'm your host, Lisa Boat. Join me in conversation with heart-led humans who share their deeply personal stories of transformation. Transforming 45 is here to uplift, connect, and remind you that it's never too late to write your next chapter. So get ready to be inspired, empowered, and transformed. Join me in this community where through powerful storytelling, we heal and reclaim our inherent magic. Electricast. Welcome to Ringside with Ray and Prince. My name is Ray Leonard Jr. Oh, that's just it? No, that's just my dad. My name is Prince Daniels Jr. Daniels again on this show, we come to humanize athletes, entertainers, business executives. We're going to see what makes them tick. Tuesdays, 10 a.m. Pacific time on Spotify, Apple, Amazon, and wherever you get your podcasts. We'll see you there. Peace and power. Electric Acid. Electric Acid.